I think we need to be shaken in the, uh, the, the rhythm and the uh, perfunctory things we can get caught up in, the complacency of how we do things. I think we, we need to be okay with doing things differently and, and doing things new and reminding us and shaking us of why we're really here. We are not here to hear a message from a man. We're here, we are here to worship Jesus. We got to make sure we get this right, church. We, we have to. So, turn with me to Romans 5. Out of worshiping Jesus, let's just look to him this morning. There are two aspects, aspects of Advent. Celebrating the arrival of the one we waited for, Emmanuel, and anticipating his return. What was clear in the, what was a clear whisper, hear this correctly, what was a clear whisper in the Old Testament is now God with a megaphone shouting to us, saying, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm for you, I love you, I've come to rescue you, I've come to change you forever. But the the thing we have to acknowledge in this is that we're the ones that need rescue, We're the ones that he came for to rescue. And a rescuer is only a rescue if he has people to rescue who need rescued. (laughs) Tracking? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us and focused like a magnifying glass on verse 6. You see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. Over and over. Verse 6, and at just the right time. At just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He came for the ungodly. He rescued the ungodly. See, here's what we have to get right. Is that Jesus didn't come and die for us once we became strong. He didn't, he didn't calculate, okay, once my people are strong, once my people are living right, once my people are, are getting it together and cleaning them, themselves up, then, okay, then that's the time that I'll come. He didn't come for us and die for us once we contained our sinfulness, like we, we put it in a cage or something and then we're good. He didn't come and die for us and reconcile us to himself when we became friendly to him. 
He didn't say, okay, once they're friends, once they become friendly towards me, once they finally see who I am and become my friends, then, then I'll come and lay my life down for them. No, he came when we were not friends. He came when we were enemies. He came when we were guilty. He came in the middle of our sin. We were in the thick, in the filth of our sin, and he came and rescued us. We had nothing to bring him but our need. Nothing to bring him but our sickness. And it's he and God and his son took the initiative on terms of grace and grace alone. In complete defiance of what we actually deserved. What did we, church, actually deserve? Remember last week, Jeremiah chapter 31? 29 chapters of what? Judgment. 29 chapters of God reminding his people what they actually deserved. And then chapter 31, 30, and 30 through 33 come, which is called the books of consolation. And in verse 20, yet my heart longs for Ephraim like a dear child. You deserve this, yet I love you. <laughs> like, can you just let that, let that be for a moment. Selah, as the Bible says. My heart yearns. Even when we were running away, even when we were spoiling the inheritance, even when we were running a race of all-out rebellion against him, though he was calling us, we decided not to hear. Though he reveals himself to us in the everyday stuff of life, the sunrise this morning, the breath you have right here, right now, is his revealing of his goodness to you. And though he gives us all of these things, we overlook it and we take advantage of his grace. We miss it. And God in Christ is through Advent, through the incarnation, sending him, did not say, clean yourselves up first and then I'll come. No, he says, I've come to clean you. We were weak. We were pretending to have it together. How are you? I'm good. Faking it so that the world may see something that is not true of us, to be better than what we really are. We were running away from who God made us to be in Christ. And you know what God said? I'm here. I'm here. And, and the, he left his adoring angels and he said goodbye to them to do what? To announce what? To the watching world. And here's the cool part. To announce what? Among many other things. Good news. Good news about what? Those lambs for sacrifice? They're no longer needed. I am the lamb to be sacrificed. Turn with me to Genesis 22. And this is, this is where we must see where the Bible is one story telling one narrative about one king, about one God, a good father who comes to rescue his children. And we must see that the glue that connects it all together is Jesus. Chapter 22 of Genesis, this is Abraham, and God comes to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis and says, I'm going to bless you, and through your offspring will be the blessing of many. And what's the one problem of that promise? Abraham looks around, he doesn't have offspring. How? How's this going to happen? Sarah even laughed, if you remember right. Because <laughs> you would have too. It was like your grandma and grandpa. And then tw chapter 22, the, the, the promised child, quote-unquote, is here. Finally here, the one in, uh, in, in 
Even, even if you just look at verse uh, 21, chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, Abraham re- replied, here I am. Verse 2, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. And mountain, on a mountain, I will show you. And, and keep going. And so early in the morning, verse 3, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants, uh, two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son. Gosh. Took the wood for the burnt offering, and placed it on his son Isaac, and he, he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Abraham replied, Yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Look at this. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And you know what happened? He did. <laughs> and we can now say, we can now say that you look forward. Now, now turn back to Romans 5. You can look for or stay there. I don't care. Don't listen to me. Read his word. <laughs> but you can now say that God did ultimately provide, not only in this, this micro story, but in the macro story, not only in this micro narrative, but in the meta narrative, he did provide the ultimate lamb for sacrifice in Jesus. God did send his son, his one and only son, and with whom he loved, to be the sacrifice in our place. Who was supposed to? Who did God say to sacrifice to Abraham? Isaac. And instead, who was sacrificed? The ram that was caught in the thicket because God provided it. And it's the same story with the gospel. And I just pray that you would hear this, that God sent Jesus to rescue us, to be the lamb Born into a death sentence, instead of us, he died. Instead of me, my sin put him there. I should have been there. And instead, God sent this lamb, this perfect spotless lamb, into the world to die the death that we deserve to die. Can you believe it, church? That's good news, isn't it? That's what Advent is about. It's why it's good news of great joy. It's why it's peace. See, if we, if we don't get this right, he, God wanted to make it as clear as possible in the sending of Christ, in the incarnation, fully God, fully human, himself taking on flesh to display to the watching world what he's really like. Look at this. This is, I mean, it just doesn't get any better than John 1 to make sure this point is clear. I told you we're going to be all over the place this morning. John 1 is beginning in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And now, all right, so there's, there's one. Let's go to Hebrews 1. 
What we must see is God didn't make it a mystery of who he is. He didn't say, figure it out. He didn't say, work harder and try better. Just learn a lot of facts about who I am. No, he said, just look to Jesus and you'll know who I am. Hebrews chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Verse 3. The son is the radiance of, the God, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had proved after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. You want to know God's love? You look to Jesus. You want to know God's forgiveness? You look to Jesus. You want to know God's ways? You look to Jesus. He perfectly resembles the heart of God. He put flesh on it. You want to know the heart of God? You look to Jesus because there it is in the flesh. That's Christmas. Your presence under the tree can't provide what Christ can provide. They'll end up in garage sales two years from now. Man, you guys are just taking care of me. Rogan brings me my glasses, and Chad, you just... Thanks, man. Appreciate you, brother. Your presence under the tree cannot... Your money can't provide you what Christ can provide you. Your stuff can't provide you what Christ can provide you. Your spouse cannot provide you what Christ can provide you. And your children cannot provide you what Christ can provide you. You put your hope nowhere else but him and him alone because he laid his life down for you. And he came to rescue you. That's Christmas. It's, if we don't... We'll get caught up in the frill of Christmas time. Man, me being the first one, I love it. Like, I love the lights. I go all out with my lights. I go out, we go all out with our Christmas tree. We have Christmas music. I got my Charlie Brown vinyl spinning all day long. You know, I love it. Yeah, we can be so caught up in it that we miss the whole purpose. We miss the whole big picture of what's actually happened. So I want to end like this. I want to provide three unexpected things that God has done in Advent. Three among many. So don't limit it to three. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But three unexpected things. First one is the unexpected lineage. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me. Matthew is, uh, I mean, the best way that I could describe it, and I is, is the most Jewish of all the Gospels? <laughs> it is. It, it, uh, it, and what Matthew does is his focus is the kingdom of God. And, and he does such a good job of, of making sure we see it, making sure that we know it, making sure that we see the big picture in all of Scripture. And, and how does Matthew start? Well, he connects the big picture. And just even in verse 1, this is, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And, and look, just skip down. Uh, don't glaze over the genealogy. It's fun to say those words too. Say it with confidence and move on. Verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And if you know any of it, which is okay if you don't, it'll just tell you that there are actually more than 14 generations in between each of these dudes. So why is Matthew doing what he's doing? 
He's artistically and strategically pointing our eyes for a specific reason to say something to us about the lineage of Christ. God's redemption plan to save the world included a woman who pretended to be a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her, a Canaanite prostitute, a Moabite woman, the adulterer, murder plot, and a cover-up of the Old Testament's greatest hero in King David, and a young teenage girl from whom God made pregnant out of wedlock. What is God saying about his people? What is God saying about his plan of redemption? When you think about how patriarchal the the first century Palestine was and how proud the Jewish people were of their ethnic distinction and how strict their sexual purity laws were, you almost feel like Matthew is actually going out of his way to shock you with this list. This is this is cool. You almost feel like Matthew is intentionally showing you something. He wants you to see something here. 14 generations from Abraham to David. Starts with Abraham because it was the first Jewish father to whom God gave the promises of the blessing and covenanted with. The Abrahamic covenant. 14 generations from David. So then David comes next because he represented the kind of king that Israel thought they needed. The king they were hoping for. Someone who would bring great prosperity. And then keep going. 14, just stay with me, 14 generations from David to exile, the exile representing the first failure, or the failure, first of David of not keeping the laws, and then all the children of Israel not being able to walk in obedience as well. So God sent them into slavery. 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Why? Don't miss this. Why? Because Jesus is God's answer to their slavery and exile. Jesus is God's answer to their darkness. Jesus is God's answer to their rebellion. Jesus is God's answer to their slavery. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham. So here's the thing. Matthew knew that you can know and you could find out we have scripture to know that it's not 14 generations in between each one of these guys. He knew that. So what is he saying? He wanted to articulate this in a specific strategic way, and it's a fancy word uh, called a gematria, that the coming of Jesus was perfect and a perfectly timed fulfillment of all the promises of God. Check this out. 14 is two sevens, right, kids? Two, seven times two is 14. And seven in the Bible summarizes, is the number of perfection, is wholeness, completion, perfect. So Two sevens then literally would translate to it was a perfect, perfect plan. That's what Matthew is saying. He's not saying it was just good. No, he was saying it was as good as it possibly could get. It's better than good. Two sevens. Keep going. And the numerical value for the Hebrew word for David, if you were to list out all letters of the word David, is 14. Stay with me. It's like God, David's is, and David's name is the 14th name that's listed. So God is weaving into with an intentional mindset of the perfection of this line, though imperfect in actual reality, but perfect in the overall sovereign plan of God's love and redemption for his people. Matthew is showing you in a very Jewish and artistic way that God is always perfect, that God is always faithful, and that God is always in control. And just because we can't see God working doesn't mean he's not working through, in and through broken, lowly, needy people. Amen? That's our hope. 
God will ultimately stamp his perfect 14 on over all the darkness and chaos in history. It's been 550 years since the exile back here. It's been over 400 years since the prophet has spoken, and Jesus is God's answer to the people waiting. It was their answer, and it's our answer. Jesus is our answer. Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, the scandalous, and the foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. Jesus was born in a messy, dirty manger from the line of a messy, broken family because that's where he knew he'd find us. Second thing, unexpected lineage is the first one. Second thing, the unexpected kingdom. Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount just a few chapters later, and what did he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. There's this country being torn apart back then and now, being torn apart by warring political forces, protesting minority groups, rebelling against the government, religious opportunists using politics as a tool for power, corrupt rulers with their own agendas. The world Jesus was born into isn't that different from our day to day, is it? He came quietly to an insignificant nation of people at the outskirts of the Roman Empire and keep going. Even within that group, he was born far away from their center of power. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Where's the center of power? Jerusalem. And not only that, angels came to who? Shepherds. Lowly, stinky, smelly shepherds. And they were on the night shift, too. Like, don't overlook that. The shift you don't want to get. Jesus' birth was witnessed by barnyard animals in a cave, and no one in the crowd of Bethlehem even cared. The only people to show up were a group of mystic foreigners two years later, despite what nativity scenes tell you, by the way. And when the powers that be found out about Jesus, they tried to have him killed. This is not how kings are supposed to arrive, but this is our king. This is not how revolutionaries revolutionaries change the world, but he is our revolutionary. Amen? This is, in short, a bad plan, and that's exactly the point. God's kingdom could not be less interested in worldly power. It's not that God doesn't need it, it's just that he doesn't want it. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Worldly power is based on fear, control, insecurity, anger, and greed. God's kingdom flips everything upside down and says, the less important you are, the more you fit right into God's kingdom story. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. God changes the world by overturning its entire concept of what really matters. And lastly, number three, the, so you have the unexpected lineage, the unexpected kingdom, and now the unexpected story. Turn with me to Revelation 12. And you might be thinking, that's a weird text to turn to for an Advent sermon. You're not wrong. Maybe you're not even thinking that. In Revelation 12, We read this story of this woman who gives birth to a child who is to rule all nations. In verse 1, we we read this. This is is John writing from the vision of God that God gave him, told him to write down on the island of Patmos. And we see this, a great sign, verse 1, appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. Now let your creativity and your imagination go here, man. 
Like, it's meant to. And uh, the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Just picture that for a moment. This thing is bad. (laughs) Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them down to the earth. The dragon stood in front of a woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. (laughs) Man, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. All right, how does that apply? See, the moment, verse 5, the moment... She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The moment he is born, the dragon rises out of the sea to devour both him and the woman. And the child is caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness. While there's different ways to interpret interpret this, and you should, there are many angles. There are Daniel 7 prophecies that lead to this moment. There are bigger things than just this moment, but it's not less than this. This is the Advent story. This is a picture of the birth of Christ. Since Genesis 3, the serpent has been at work deceiving and destroying, asking God's people, did God really say? Is God really good? No, no, he's just afraid you'll be like him. The prophecy in Genesis 3.15 says that there is one day a child who will, be, who will be born who would crush the serpent's head. And since the world has long lain in sin and error pining, we listen to these lies that God isn't as good as he says he is and can't give you what he says he can give you. That he isn't sufficient, that he's lacking, that he's holding back on you. See, what we see in this, in this see, we picture this baby born in a manger as this calm and quiet moment. But you know, Sometimes when people ask me how I'm doing, and I'll respond like a duck. You know what I mean when I say that? So what's a duck doing on top of the water? What's really happening underneath, though? Better believe they're flapping like crazy to get where they want to go. Or another analogy is, you know how in a, a stage play, you see that it comes together all beautifully and perfect, but really behind the scenes, you rip that curtain open behind the scenes, and there's just mass chaos. Anybody ever been to a play? You know that's true. Right? You're like, you got wardrobe changes, you got people yelling, you got all of this stuff happening. Right? And so what, what God is doing here is that same thing. He's given us a picture of what was actually going on. And it wasn't as peaceful and quiet as we experience in the world today. It was actually a war. See, when we pull back this scene of serenity, calmness, and silence, what's really going on is like a war. And what is the first attack? What is the first revealed attack of many that's already happened, but the biggest attack, the D-Day moment that God declares to the enemy that it's over, it's done, the victory is secure? Was it a soldier with a, on a white horse with a sword drawn? No, it was a baby in a manger. Why? God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. See, what we, he, he appeared, and when he appeared, this weary, tired, broken world rejoiced. Why? Good news is here. 
because finally the one who would crush this serpent's head once and for all had come. What we see in this story here is a birth scene, and it was no silent night. The birth of Jesus landed in enemy territory. The beginning of the end is announced. The victory secured. God in Jesus, in his life, in his birth, in his life, his death and resurrection, has secured a victory for those who would claim it, for those who by faith would trust his finished work. And we are now in a process of working that victory out. See, we have two choices, and I'll land. You have two choices. You can either live from his victory or for victory. You could either exhaust yourself and try and work hard enough to please God. You could try and exhaust yourself to do all the right things for God. You could try and work your way up the ladder of religiosity to get to God. And God in the gospel says, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You just rest in Christ. Your behavior will change as you abide in him. Your obedience will follow as you rest in him. I've sent him to rescue you from the tyranny of religious activity from the slavery of shame and guilt. I've sent Jesus to do what you never could do. So believe him, trust him, follow him, obey him. Because when Jesus came up from the water in Matthew 4, God announces to those who were there, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then what did he say? Listen to him. Do what he tells you to do. (laughs) See, Jesus in this Advent scene is this unexpected backstory of a war zone. And one day, that wind will finally appear and the dragon will be tossed into eternal hell forever and every tear will be wiped away and all things will be made new. This is what we see in Advent. It's nothing, it's not the calm, peaceful scene that we see. It's an all-out war. And that's the magic of Christmas, church. So as we end here, it's why it's the most wonderful time of year. It's why it's good news of great joy to a tired, weary world that our Emmanuel, our Savior, our King of Kings, our Prince of Peace, our wonderful Counselor is here. So as we sing this last song, we have communion uh, placed on, on chairs around you. And I just want to invite you to, to take and eat. Jesus says, take of my body broken for you. Take of my blood spilled for you. Remember me. Remember who I am. And, and don't miss this. There is no rigidness to this activity. Right? So sometimes we think of, of that, man, we got to be quiet, and our kids have to be quiet, and, and it's got to be this, this modeled thing. Uh, I'm telling you what, man. This is a celebration that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. We should be celebrating. This is a party that we get to feast at. We get to reflect on. Take that time and sit there and reflect and then take and eat. And if you feel like you want to shout, you feel like you want to dance, you feel like you, you want to celebrate what he's... Can you believe that he would do this for us? Church, can you believe it? <laughs> so I'm going to do the same thing as we opened up take a moment to receive, to listen, to remember Jesus. Open palms if you'd like. Receive from God what he wants. We must respond in joy. We must respond in singing. We must respond in changed lives. Thank you, Jesus.
In your name, amen. Take and eat as the Spirit leads you, and we'll sing.